It's great to be able once again this morning to delve into 1 Peter and uh, follow on in uh, what Peter is trying to teach us. I remember uh, several years ago, I was fascinated with a Canadian author and journalist, Malcolm Gladwell, and he wrote this book called Blink. Anybody read Blink? Nobody blinked. (laughs) So uh, the, the theory behind the book is that actually, as human beings, we have this inbuilt ability to make some incredibly sharp and rational and uh, good decisions that are just part of um, our own DNA as well as the circumstances that we go through. But he had one uh, illustration of that as part of his research that really captured my attention. And it's one of those things I, I, I very often don't remember a lot of things from books, but some things do stand out and they stay with you. And they stayed with me. And in order to support his theory, he used this example of um, the, uh, a guy who's a, a psychologist um, who works particularly in the area of relationship. His name is John Gottman. And uh, in his interview with John Gottman, he uh, was fascinated because John Gottman, uh, over the years, has perfected this technique of watching couples, and sometimes initially it was videotaped, that's how far back in time it goes, videotaped couples in their engagement with each other, and he was beginning to be able to predict with fairly high accuracy, around 97%, whether the couple was going to make it or whether they were going to split up. And Malcolm Gladwell was really fascinated about this, how this man had this ability to read into people's lives and situations, and particularly the engagement with each other, to be able to tell whether their marriage was going to survive or actually fail. And he met with him, and he talked to him. And Gottman has developed uh, what he calls, uh, he's a bright guy, the, the, the four horsemen that he finds in relationships that can, can, can really give you a clue that things are going to be bad. And, and the four things are defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. But then he was actually beginning to develop this technique that even being in a restaurant and overhearing a conversation between a couple, a heated conversation that is, within three minutes he began to be able to discern whether they were going to be making it or not. And Gladwell is asking him, well, what is it? You know, what's your secret? What is it? And he said, it's just one word, contempt. He says, if I ever see contempt in a relationship, and over my whole experience of counseling and and talking to people and walking through difficulties with couples, if I observe in one or both partners in marriage contempt towards each other, he says, it's the single most important sign that the marriage is in trouble. You can guess by now that this morning is going to be quite serious and quite deep. And I'll give you a trigger warning. There might be some things that for some of you in the room, this is going to be a little bit challenging and difficult. But as part of the family and part of engaging with Scripture, the way God comes into our lives, he doesn't want to push us to push things down and hide them. But the Scripture engages with real life, messy as it is. Sometimes, and possibly this morning, there could be some things that are challenging. Listen, you and I know this. Relationships are so challenging. They really are. 
And it isn't just relationships, and we can talk about all sorts of relationships between, you know, friends, between people that we work with, with people that even our neighbors. But even more so in the context of marriage. Marriages were so pressurized. I think it's probably Satan's number one target in the world, and it's probably always been, it's relationships, human relationships. He tries to destroy that because he knows God created something so beautiful in relationships, so like himself, that Satan's best way to undermine that is just to destroy relationships of every kind. And the truth is, although I I, I don't think it's the case for most people in this room, you might think to yourself, my marriage is fine. I'm doing great. Pressure can just be around the corner. None of us are in that situation in which we can say, do you know what? When it comes to relationships, I've nailed it. I'm absolutely fine, and I will always be absolutely fine. And therefore, I think it's, it's intriguing that Peter speaks into this situation. The big picture of what Peter is doing, he's speaking to Christians who live in a hostile pagan culture. And what he's trying to do is to equip them to live the Christian life in amidst hostility. And we've already looked that he'd given them some advice. And actually this flows right at the back of what we've looked already. And he talks about submission. Which frankly, the, the, the more I delved into the letter and the more I'm kind of aware of the culture wars that we live in, this seems to, be, to, be, to, to me to be quite countercultural advice. Because what Peter is saying really strongly, he's saying you ought to submit. And obviously that's a challenging word and we heard about that already. And he's talking first of all of people, all of us, submitting ourselves as citizens to the authorities that we live under. And then he's talking about slaves submitting to their masters. And now he continues and he delves into the whole idea of relationship. Let's capture what Peter is doing here. I I plead with you, let's capture what Peter is doing here. He's basically saying to Christians who have already got a target sign on their backs because they follow Jesus, do not give them any more reasons to bring you down. Don't be troublemakers for nothing. Don't look to stir trouble, whether it's with regards to authorities or whether it's regards to your masters. That's the context. Watch out. Don't cause more trouble for yourselves unnecessarily. I think that's the vibe that Peter is trying to kind of channel through as he's speaking to the believers. So he's speaking now to husbands and wives. And I'm probably best entitled to speak on husbands and wives because I've got no skin in the game. This is one of those advantages of being single. You know, I, I can speak and nobody can say, oh man, you're biased. Truth is, we're all bringing our biases to things. This is what he says. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, 
the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah and obeyed Abraham and called him the Lord, her Lord. You are her daughters. If you do what is right and you do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. So he addresses both husbands and wives and gives them advice. And the advice that he gives to the wives probably have a couple of connotations in them that are really important. First of all, he says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. At the first reading, when we read that, that's a very countercultural message for us today, right? <laughs> wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. You know, there are loads of my friends, uh, female friends, that kind of said some things in the vows and others who didn't say certain things in the vows. And it can be a really contentious issue. But again, it's really important to understand the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing to a world dominated by the Greek Roman thinking, very patriarchal. The Romans very much celebrated paterfamilias, where the husband was the head of the home. So what Paul is envisaging is that actually, and there's a consistency with what we've already seen with regards to citizens and slaves, is the whole idea of submitting to authority. So what Peter is actually saying, he's saying, speaking to a wife that had probably become a Christian, whose husband isn't a Christian, he's saying, don't now see your Christianity and your uh, following of Jesus as an opportunity to be rebellious. Because that could have been a bad witness for the husband himself. And Peter is giving uh, some advice and he's saying, instead, just make sure that you live in such a way, that you submit in such a way that even if they don't believe, and you know, usually that's my experience, it's been the experience in our family, when a Christian wife becomes, when a wife becomes a Christian, married to a non-Christian husband, there's a fairly high level of nagging about Jesus and about gospel and about church and about, you know, embracing the faith. There's there. So I think Peter is assuming that that might be there, but he's saying, even if they don't believe your word when you're, you're, you're speaking to them, you're encouraging them to come to Christ, that they should look at your life and they would see purity and reverence in your life. It's really important to notice that it doesn't say women submit to men. Hello? It doesn't say that. Let's keep what the text is saying. It says, wives submit to your husbands. And again, if I was to sum it up in, in, in one sentence, I think, again, what Peter would be saying to the wives is don't attract attention by dissension. Don't attract attention by dissension. 
Don't cause trouble when you come to Christ. Suddenly thinking, I'm a liberated woman. I don't respect my husband anymore because that's not going to be a good witness to him. That's not going to win him over to Christ. And that's a, a part of the advice that he gives to women. Now, we're opening some big pastoral parentheses here, right? Because this is really important. And it's probably a bit heavy, but it's important that we tackle this. That verse, wife submit to your husband, has been often misused in church circles to keep abused women imprisoned in an abusive situation. It's really important to understand the context of this. There is no sense in the text where Peter is encouraging those Christian wives to submit themselves to their husbands that there is any abusive behavior here. If you think there is, you're reading into the text and you're not being biblical. But unfortunately, I have come across so many situations in my pastoral life and I've seen so many families where women were living in an abusive situation, sometimes physical, sometimes emotionally and mentally. And when they went and spoke to the leadership of the church, when they went and spoke to the pastor, they got quoted this, wives submit to your husbands. In another way, go back home and get some more black eyes. This isn't what this is teaching. Pastorally, can I say to you, first and foremost, if you as a woman, and not just as a woman because the roles can be reversed as well, but we're going with women because this is where we are right now in a text. If you as a woman are in a physically abusive situation, please do get out. Please do get out. There is nothing in the Bible to support you having to go through that. If you are a victim of physical violence, you get in touch with the police. That just isn't right. If the abuse, and again, church, we must hear this. We must hear this because I am seeing as a 50-year-old the damage that this does. Some people may say sticks and stones don't break your bones. And some people may say, well, you know what? He hasn't beaten her. He's not hit her. So it's all right. Mental and emotional abuse is just as damaging as physical abuse. I see the results of it in grown-up people in their 60s and 70s who've been through that. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. It doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying that if you're in an emotionally, mentally abusive relationship that you call the police and you get out necessarily. I think there's probably some room to fight on this. And there is prayer, there's patience, there's engagement, there's a conversation which you're saying to the person, if you don't stop this, I will walk out. And if they don't, you might need to give some time. Maybe people don't realize what they're doing. And then you make a decision. My encouragement to you as well, if you are in that situation, you're faced with loads of fears and excuses. You could be thinking, how can I make it if I, if I move away from home? Trust me, you will make it. I've seen women who made it. You will make it. You might be thinking, what will people in the church say who disapprove of this? 
And I would say, stuff them. Stuff them. Because they don't know what it's like to live with what you live. What matters is what God's word is saying. And there are godly people in the church who can advise you and understand on the situation. People judge you quietly without knowing all the ins and outs. Just, you know, let them be. Let them be. Thirdly, don't ever say, I'm doing this for the kids. I could take you by the hand and get you to talk to probably tens of kids who've been part of an abusive marriage. If they were honest, they would say, I wish she would have left him because it's made my life hell. Don't do it for the kids. You're killing yourself. They don't need that. It's a big pastoral conversation. It's a big league we've opened. But I want us to be the kind of church where this kind of stuff is real. Because, again, the Bible sometimes is being misused. And you could be sitting there and somebody might have told you, no, it says in the Bible that you need to do that. Just be very, very careful with that. And if you would value a conversation, uh, I really appreciate we as men might not be the best. There, there are women leaders in the church you can talk to. But you can also talk to us as men. You can talk to any anybody but please do reach out and do not buy into false ways of interpreting god's word yes it does say here wife submit to your husband what's the reason in order to be a good example of winning over the heart of a man who actually doesn't know christ and by you setting that example it speaks to the man in an incredible way Another thing to say, to throw in pastorally, submission. Be very careful with submission because there are levels of submission. And I think our submission as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, is to God, to Christ himself. And then he, Peter kind of talks about the second tier of submission, which is submitting to authorities, submitting to bosses, submitting to husbands for, for, for the wives. That falls, first of all, under the submission of God. If your husband, in asking you or expecting you to submit to him, is expecting you to do something that disobeys God, you've got absolute right to not obey the husband. It's as simple as that. I'll give you, I'll give you probably the most common example. Abortion. You know, sometimes the husband would say, I want you to have an abortion. We don't want to have any. And you could be saying, well, it says in the Bible, it says in 1 Peter, Christy preached on it. Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husbands. Husband said, go and have an abortion. No, you know that an abortion is wrong according to God. So that trumps it. You don't go and have an abortion, even if your husband is asking you, because that disobeys God's law. Very extreme, but, very, but you would be surprised how common this one is. So we must have God's will. We submit to God first, and then second to the tears. It's the same with government. You know, sometimes government, and this has been... You know, controversial, but, you know, some churches in Canada, government says you can't meet to church. People said, well, God's word is saying we should be meeting together, so we're going to disobey the government in order to obey God. You know, it's a conversation, but I can see what's going on there. So we've got to be careful as well, that we don't buy into just that little verse, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, and actually fall <laughs> into wrong living and wrong thinking. The second thing that, 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 that he talks about is, is this, talking about the ornaments. And again, this is great, isn't it? You know, me as a bloke uh, telling, you know, and Peter as a bloke telling the ladies what they should wear and not wear. But again, get into the context of what this is trying to do. 
So Peter is saying, encouraging them to have a character emphasis in their lives instead of an external one, an inward one instead of an external one. So instead of looking at all the gold jewelry and elaborate hairstyle and fine clothes, he says, just invest in your character, in your way of being and your attitude in such a way that it will be winsome. Let me paint a picture for you. So, um, I'm trying to think of a Roman, uh, let's say Drusilla becomes a Christian, right? So she becomes a Christian and she's married to Romeo, right? (laughs) So, you know, suddenly, you know, Drusilla starts going to the gathering, to church, you know, to the gathering of believers in her locality. And as she's going to, to, to church, you know, she kind of, you know, wants to look good, you know, because she's a lady that looks after herself, you know, so she puts on the jewelry, she puts on the makeup, she puts on all the kind of stuff. If husband gets a little bit funny about her going to church, he'd say, hey, what is this thing, church, going on? Who's going there? Is Aurelius going there? <laughs> See how this can play out? And suddenly she's well-dressed, well-prepared, and she looks like she's going to a special place. But then his jealousy could be stirred up in his mind and heart. And again, Peter is saying, don't, don't, don't give him reasons to hate you. Don't put on all that kind of stuff, which actually is superficial to some level. Don't invest in that. So he's using that as an opportunity, not just to protect the woman from false accusations of a potential affair that could be happening there, but also to say, look, just invest in really important. It doesn't say don't wear any makeup. It doesn't say don't put any jewelry on. It doesn't say don't put any nice clothes on. That's not what it's saying. That's the way it was interpreted. That's how I grew up. My church, you know, the women didn't wear any jewelry. were not allowed to wear any jewelry. You, you, you know, that's, that's what it was. And then there was a whole debate about makeup. We won't go into that, all that kind of stuff, you know. But that's the point. The point that Peter is making, he's saying two things here. A, don't give him a reason to be jealous and start having, you know, things playing on in his mind. And secondly, just make sure you're not, you know, and again, we live in a culture that is so obsessed. Now, we, us here, so obsessed with the physical appearance. And, and you know, it goes for both, you know, men and women. You know, women may have the, the, the kind of the hairstyle and the, and the looks, and men have the cars, the particular car that they drive or the way their, you know, physique looks. We're so obsessed about it. And Peter would be saying, look, don't, don't just, Put an emphasis on that. Put an emphasis on the inward life that is there. So that's the advice that he gives to women. It is really interesting because as a chunk, you know, it's probably, uh, we won't go into the whole Sarah thing because that's quite hilarious, but that's for another time. You know, but in one to four, it's kind of, you know, four verses given to to, to women and then one verse given to men. And you'll be saying, well, why? Because actually what you see Peter doing, he first addresses the probably weaker or probably more oppressed person. So he doesn't talk to bosses, he talks to slaves. He doesn't talk to governors, he talks to citizens. He doesn't talk to men first and foremost, he talks to women because they are the oppressed minority and he's wanted to encourage them in this. But he speaks to the men as well. It's not just the women. And I've given you a couple of things for the women. I'm going to give you six for men in just one verse. And this is, uh, th- this is what Peter is writing to the men. 
Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you to the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's only one verse, but there's so much in it that is really significant. He's speaking to the husbands, realizing that they have a part to play. This is not one-way traffic. I very often get a situation where you get the abusive husband banging his hand on a table and saying, it says in the Bible, wives should submit to your husbands. And I bang my fist on the table and I say, it also says in the Bible that a man, the husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church and give himself for her. Sir, stand up. It's not one-way traffic. It's not one person that has a responsibility. It's both sides have a responsibility. And Peter is right into the husbands, and he's saying, number one, he's saying husbands, in the same way, be considerate. Considerate. And in other words, know your wife. Think about your wife, understand your wife, think about her needs, think about who she is. Be considerate, take time to think what she's like and how you best relate to her and how you best encourage her. The second thing, when he's talking to the husband, he's saying, be considerate as you live with your wives. Seems a bit obvious. But actually, how many men are really present? Live with. Not lodge with. Not part-time come and eat and sleep and whatever else. But live with. Do life with. Be present. Be at home. Men nowadays have this incredible propensity to escape home, to escape responsibilities. Whether it's regards to the home, the garden, the children, the wife. It's a real challenge that Peter is laying to the men saying, you've got to live with your wives, doing life together, having that sense of being all there, present at home. Number three, he says, respect them. Treat them with respect. (sighs) What does it look like for a husband to respect his wife? To pay attention to her thoughts, to her view, to her opinion. And take it as a weighty matter. To take time to think about the point that she's getting across. To respect for who she is. To have that sense of really treasuring her as his wife. Number four. It talks about a weaker partner. And it can be seen as a derogatory term. And it's probably used at times as a derogatory term. Uh, It's interesting, they're going all the way back to Genesis. It seems like 
Adam was alone and helpless. And God tried to make him more rounded and more full. didn't work out. Needed a companion. Needed a partner. Needed somebody that was going to complete him. You know, here's my question. Which one of the two was more needy and weak? Was it Eve or was it Adam? Because my theory is that actually Adam was missing something in his life. So actually... He's the one that was in the minus, and God created the woman in order to make them together and add and bring a plus. So there's never a sense in which Scripture talks derogatory, in a derogatory manner, about women. Well, the truth is, and I know this is probably controversial in current sort of gender debates, a woman is most of the time physically weaker than a man. She has a higher tolerance to pain which is very obvious, but she's weaker than a man. But she's never inferior emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, as Peter makes it very clear. But a man is called to support the weaker partner. That's why Peter calls it the weaker partner, because she needs support. She needs that encouragement. And probably, I would dare to say, primarily physically, with a man just getting you know, stuff done, helping around the house, helping with the kids, helping, doing things physically in order to help and, and have that sense of supporting his wife. So considerate, being present, respectful, supporting. Number five, humble. When Peter is describing their relationship, he's, just as the man is about to get cocky going, it says there, submit, wives, submit to your husbands. Don't get cocky, mate. Don't get cocky. Because it says here that she is an heir with you to the gracious gift of life. There is no superiority, spiritually speaking. Although there are different gender roles within marriage, there is no superiority. Jesus submitted to the Father, but he was equal to the Father. You get that. It's the same, in one sense, in marriage. And he's actually saying, you stay humble because she is alongside you. She is not beneath you. You are not her boss. You're not to demean her. She's alongside you, an heir of grace. Jesus died for her. Just like he died for you. So stay humble. Just as much as you're in need of grace, she's in need of grace. You're both the same. Stay humble. Number six, it talks about actually the, the, this, this amazing thing. It says that nothing will hinder your prayers. Husbands, you ought to be a praying man. It's one of the most neglected and yet one of the most fundamentally impacting activities that you can do as a man of God to be a man of prayer. And Peter has this expectation as a man, you will be a praying man. And there's also probably woven in there this, this real truth that our vertical relationship, and it comes again in the whole of the New Testament, is impacted by our horizontal. You know, don't, don't kid yourself. And time will always tell. Don't kid yourself. If you're beating your wife... You may be the greatest preacher people think in the pew you are. 
But in God's eyes, you're nothing. You're nothing. If you are a good husband and a good dad, and you may not be the greatest preacher, the greatest this or the greatest that, God gives you the thumbs up, and he's delighted with you. Our prayers as men, our prayers as husbands can be hindered if our relationships are horizontal, if we don't live with those qualities that Peter is talking about. And that is the challenge that is there. You know, horizontal relationships matter because they will affect our vertical relationship. And that's why Peter is talking about this. Peter is talking, trying to equip the, the, the husbands and the wives about how to live in a hostile culture. And the truth remains the same for us today. The application probably would be slightly different, but the truth remains the same. You know, our relationships with one another become a shop window of our relationship with God. Our relationships with one another become a shop window of our relationship with God. Jesus said, by this they shall know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It's the most powerful, amplified, highlighted headline of our relationship with God. When there is love between one another. Wider in all of our relationships, but particularly in the context of marriage. The reality is we're all in a constant battle with our flesh, with our selfish self. So whether you're single like me, or whether you're married, or whether you're divorced, or whether you're bereaved, the reality is all of us are in the same boat. We're all fighting our own flesh. Our own flesh is is basically our selfishness. And no matter how long you've been on the Christian journey, trust me, <laughs> and I've not been as long as others in the room, but I've been long enough to know that it's, it, it, you know, it doesn't always get better with longevity. It's a constant battle that will only finish when we'll be standing before him on that day. So don't just count yourself out thinking, hey, you know, my flesh is really nicely harnessed because you might just have a thing that will throw it off, you know, within hours or within days. We're in that constant battle. And marriages certainly are a fertile ground for that battle with our own flesh. You know, our genders differ. That's why Peter is giving different advice to women than to men. But our battle is the same. And we all need help. We can't do it alone. And what we need, and what I'm praying these days for us as a church, is for the fruit of the Spirit. That's what I'm praying for. I'm praying for my life, so I'm praying for us all. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Man alive, how will our relationships look like if we're fruitful with this kind of stuff? What will our marriages look like if this is blossoming and, and, and bringing forth fruit in those situations. Here is my encouragement for, for, for us here this morning. 
First of all, if anything that I've mentioned this morning that's kind of heavy and challenging is something that you're going through, please don't go through it alone and, and, and reach out. And we'll do what we can do uh, in order to encourage you. Just don't go through it alone. Secondly, husbands and wives, can I encourage you to have a conversation? Perhaps find, find, find a time, find a, a place this week. Don't delay too long, because if you delay too long, it'll never happen. But just maybe have a conversation. And, you know, asking questions like, how am I doing towards you? How can I help? How can I help you? So very often it's about what I want. And we have this honest conversation where we sit the other side down and we go, this is what I don't like about you, and this and this and this and this, and I want this and I want this. How about just coming open and saying, do you know what? This isn't about me. It's about you. What do you see? What can I do for you? What do I need to change? What kind of husband would you like me to be? What kind of wife would you like me to be? And I recognize that's not always possible in all the contexts in this, in this room this morning. But if it is applicable, if it is helpful to you, can I just encourage you to take some time to have that conversation? But don't put the other person under pressure. Make yourself vulnerable and say, you know, I, 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 this isn't about me. This is about you now. Maybe you take turns. Maybe you have, you know, a couple of meetings and one, you, you know, one person does it, and then another meeting, the other person does it. And probably something that relates to all of us, let's really be praying in the context of relationships, marriages, parenting. Because as I said right at the very beginning, man, that's the battleground. That's the battleground. And we put on the nice smile on a Sunday morning, and it's right that we put on, you know, what we're going to come... We're not going to come and spill the beans on everything. But the reality is there's so much pain in this room. There is so much, so many tears, so many fears. So, so there's probably anger. There's probably unforgiveness. There's probably all sorts of things. You know, and my prayer is that, first of all, we would be a praying church. That we don't need to know. Sometimes, you know, there's this addiction within evangelical churches. I want to know. I want to know what's going on. In. We don't need to know. We can pray without even knowing the detail of who and what. We can pray. We can cover it in prayer. Cover it in prayer for the whole week. Pray for relationship between husbands and wives. Pray for relationship between parents and children. Pray for that. Just pray for that. Pray against the work of the enemy who's coming to steal and destroy. And have that sense in which this is precious. This is precious because this is where the battle is won. But please, may I plead with you this morning, don't leave things to fester and pretend it's going to get better because it's not. I, um, I read a, a couple of weeks ago, I read this, uh, this, this story. Um, anybody remember Ronald Reagan, the American president? You know, they don't make them like that anymore. So, interestingly enough, Patty Davis was his daughter, one of his daughters, and she was politically the totally opposite of her dad. 
So she was kind of anti-nuclear, you know, kind of fairly lefty. And obviously her dad was a Republican, conservative. And the two really did not get on with each other. And in 2012, she gave an, uh, an interview um, to Town & Country magazine. And she regretted deeply her actions and her relationship with her father and everything that she missed. This is what she wrote. While I, was, while I was demonstrating for world peace, I was a child railing against a parent, nothing more. I was at war with my father. One of my biggest regrets was turning my father down every time he wanted to sit down and talk with me about life. All I wanted to tell him is, I already know your side. I regretted participating at an anti-nuclear rally in 1982 at the Rose Bowl with 100,000 people in attendance. And just before I came to the podium to speak, the entire audience was chanting, get a new president, get a new president, get a new president. Every fiber in my being told me to walk away, but I gave the speech anyway. And looking back, she says, I remember that speech. I remember coming on stage when 100,000 people were calling for my father to resign. And Later on in life, when my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, she said this, I would look into my father's eyes and try to reach past the murkiness of Alzheimer's with my words, with an apology, how, hoping that in his heart he heard me and that he understood. In the conclusion of the interview, she says these words, I wish that now, all those years ago, I had led with kindness, not with ideological stridency. We are, after all, remembered in the end of how we treated others. Sometimes the political has to be tempered by the personal. I broke my heart when I read that. Because you could see the regret of a relationship, father-daughter, but a relationship that remained strained until the end. And all that was left was regret. I plead with you this morning. Don't make the same mistake. Do something now that can have an impact on the future. Don't let regret eat you up afterwards with words of, I wish I would have. And I encourage you. Let's pray as a church for our families. Families, husbands, and wives. Reach out to each other. So that, as Peter says, we will become a witness, a shop window for those looking around us as normal, weak people that actually are glued together by the grace of God. Let's stand together.